Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show. I'm Jen, and today on Signal Boost, we have Tanya Liburd, Associate Editor of Abyss and Apex Magazine, Riesling-nominated poet and short story writer. Welcome to the show, Tanya. Hello. So let's dive right in. Why don't you tell us about yourself and your work? I am a Canadian person with Caribbean ancestry. Um, both of my parents were born in the Caribbean. I was raised in Trinidad, but however, I was born in Canada. I am living in Canada now. I write short stories and I have a novel in the works that I'm trying to finish up. I write, my, my novels are mostly horror, the ones that I've written, um, but my short stories tend to be mostly fantasy. Um, I do have, my first published short story was a horror one though, in a Canadian anthology called Postscripts to Darkness. My most prominent short story will is a question of faith that's uh, published by Book Smugglers in July the 11th of this year. And um, I like to incorporate disability and abuse issues into my fiction. The disability tends to be mental illness because that's pa- it's a passion of mine. So you find that constantly in my work. A lot of sto- stories that are going to that are going to be coming out, I deal with sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and the people overcome that. Uh, that those all those issues are in my were in my first story that I got published. So you just had a story published in July, and that was a question of faith and. First off, the technology combined with spirituality was super cool. So I was very excited about that. Thank you. I worked hard on that. (laughs) It was really interesting and intriguing sort of look at how a futuristic religion might operate. But what really struck me was kind of the concept and the horror element that was in it in terms of how uh, that character who is essentially possessed It was basically because of a sort of lack or loss of identity. And I found that concept really intriguing. So can you tell us a little bit more about the story and what it's about and and about that concept and why you decided to explore that with um, a question of faith? Okay. There are, there is a lesbian couple. One of them is a, is the protagonist of the story. Her name is Keke, C-E-K-E. And her partner is Nguare, N-G-W-A-R-E. They are Egyptian. Oh, they're so sound made ma- magi or magi. How do you pronounce that? I'm never sure myself. So magi, magi. <laughs> I think they both work. <laughs> they work with technology, and the and the the uh the gods are accessible in my story. 
um, and they're working on a way to directly tap into the gods. There is a person who's associated with the church who was found on their doorsteps one day and they took him in and he is a young man and he um, basically gets caught up in the identity of the god in a very messed up way. Much like how you would have people being possessed by dancing in African religions where they get possessed by the god. And, and for example, like in, vo- in voodoo in Haiti, which is prominent in Haiti. There's other religions that are like that in the Caribbean, like Obia, which is in, you know, Trinidad, as a lot of Obia practitioners. They get possessed by the god and the god speaks through them what happens with this guy in the story is his personal psychology messes up the channel through which the god is coming and things and bad things start to happen and the technical aspect of having a person channel a god is something that i explore in the story at one point keke ends up having to go out and solve why this is happening um and she has to go and find Wahibra. Wahibra has also decided to um because uh her partner is pregnant, Wahibra um wants to bless the child or do something with the child and KK has to go and find him before he does any harm because he's not stable. He, he has actually killed somebody in the story. So you, n- you never know what's going to happen. He can harm the baby. He can harm the, uh, Nguare. He can kill them both. Um, so she's off and she has to battle this. Um, and she been, ne- she was neglecting Nguare for a little bit. So she's feeling guilty now. And all sorts of things are going through her mind, but there's a happy ending. I suppose in horror, you would not have a happy ending. And in uh, um, a lot of my literary stuff, um, I had a story in in the Malahat Review. My stories tend to not have a happy ending, and people have a problem with that. And I'm like, oh. Anyway, before I go off on a tangent, back to this idea of identity. I'm finding it interesting that you see that, because for me personally, that is one of the most horrifying things that can happen to a person. It's like losing your mind. It's like slowly disintegrated through dementia or Alzheimer's. That for me is more frightening than cancer because you have your personhood there. It's just the body. Your identity and everything about you is in your brain. Once that starts to go, what else do you have? And for me, that is um quite frightening and it does keep me up at night sometimes when I think about it because there were relatives who have died from dementia and I'm like am I going to end up with that when I get older because I am a person my intersectionality has to be I'm not only person of color I deal with mental illness and uh, you know and if you read all the 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 studies and the newspaper reports people with mental illness are tend you may have more of an inclination towards dementia you know and i'm at the age where you know you start thinking about your mortality your 20s are gone your 30s are gone and the next stage of your, the next stage of the the next set decade is upon me lots of things to think about your memory starts to go apparently after in in your 40s and I've experienced that, and I go, oh my God, what's going on? Both for KK and for Wahibre, right? Like, 
they're both trying to find that their identities. Like, Keke is trying to find who she is and who she will be as a parent, which I thought was fascinating and beautiful and so familiar as a mom. It is a question that I think everybody who, even people who aren't parents, but like the idea of becoming a parent, that question is there. So she's kind of dealing with that and the balance. And then Wahibre, as a child who was found, who doesn't know who, where he's from, you know, just kind of struggling to find that and then losing himself in it when he has almost found it, like he's becoming, but then to lose it and his connection to the child, KK's child. I was beautifully done. I was very, I was, I was very moved by your story. So, and then of course it, to me, it was a horror because I think you're right. That idea of losing personhood is terrifying on a number of levels, you know, culturally. Oh, that's another can of worms. I'm, I was talking on a personal level. You want to get into that? <laughs> Go for it. I was Anya. just talking on a personal <laughs> level. I mean, that. I think the powers that be allowed certain Afrocentric and Indocentric and other centric communities outside of North America to de- develop a sense of identity. West Indians do not consider themselves Africans, but it is, the Caribbean is a very Afrocentric region. It's also very Indocentric. I like to tell people that if you want to know what it's really like to be a multicultural society, go to Trinidad. I have a cousin whose daughter is half East Indian. They're Christian, though. And I have another friend from high school when I went to Trinidad there. She married, uh, I think her husband converted. He's black. She is East Indian and she was Muslim and they're both Muslim. So that is very common. In fact, there's a Patois word for it. It's called Dugla. Nicki Minaj is, a, is Dugla. Um, she's half East Indian, half black. You know, it's, it's a very common phenomenon in, in Trinidad. There, is a very strong Yoruban cultural transplant aspect in terms of there's an expression in Trinidad called I mighty like Shango and Shango is a god of thunder. And let's just get it. Okay. Let me go into a, a tangent here. When, um, Thor first came out, I was like, I have my own god of thunder. I have my own trickster in my own culture. I don't really want to bother seeing that. And then um, I forgot how I saw it on TV. Or, no, 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 no. I saw the thing, the, the Comic-Con appearance of Tom Hiddleston, and, and then I became a Hiddlestoner. Anyway, but the God of Thunder is Shango, and he's very prominent in the Caribbean, especially and, and, and in Trinidad. And Nancy, call them Nancy stories, but the proper name for the God is Nancy. He's a trickster God, just like Loki, um, and like many other trickster gods around the world. Um, but he's very prominent in in Trinidad, and there's books of Nan- Nancy stories. Grandparents will tell you about Nancy stories when the power goes out. All that makes the Caribbean very a very Afrocentric place, and we have a distinct identity. We have our own language. We have our own folklore. We've won our own Nobel prizes. We have made our mark on the world. Um, my reading, my initial reading was a lot of post-colonial literature from the Caribbean. And then I started to learn about other writers like Hemingway, you know, and, you know, like Old Man in the Sea and The Pearl were very beautiful stories that I remember really reading in high school. And then uh, my mom gave me um, Chinua Achibi's um, Things Fall Apart when I was about eight or nine. 
that book left me angry at the end. It left a mark on me. When I started to read about fantasy, it wasn't until I was about 20. Someone handed me, um, it was a, the Dragonlands Chronicles of the Test of the Twins, the Time of the Twins, and the something else of the twins. And I got fascinated with this whole idea of, of, of fantasy literature, and I just dove into it and never came back. Vampire the Masquerade had a book about a clan of, of vampires called the Asamite, and I saw a black guy as a vampire on the cover. So that's what inspired me to write about vampires and black vampires. And I have a, I have a fair number of short stories, um, and two novels that deal with black, that deal with black vampires. Um, we have our own sort of vampire in the Caribbean called the Sukuyan. And if you see my name on Twitter right now, it's Tanya the Sukuyan because in my novel that I've actually managed to finish complete, the protagonist is the Sukuyan. And we don't pussyfoot or romanticize what a Sukuyan is. A Sukuyan takes her skin off and flies in the air. So if you see them, what somebody would like would like with their skin off. So I've been asking this of everybody. We've kind of gotten your answer so far, but why horror and what makes it the best genre for exploring the things that you want to explore in your fiction? Things that are taboo are not necessarily bad for society. For example, sexual exploration, talking, writing about sex, things like that. The horrors of slavery, for example, in, in the, in the movie Get Out. Things like that where you, society has made it so it may end up in a horror story. It's a, it's a really good place to explore things like that. Issues of identity, you, you identified that in my story. Abuse, things like that. Those things trigger people, um, and horror has a reputation for, um, it's basically where you go to do things like that. Fantasy, you can do it, but, it will get labeled horror. You can deal with it to a certain degree, but horror lets you apply to as far as you want with those issues. If you want to explore the horrors of slavery and people don't like to read about that, you can go to horror as in get out. And I plan to, I have to do some research for my first novel that I started writing, that I, that I've ever written to get into that. And I, I don't think I'll be the same after I find out because there's some things that I know right now and I, it, it, it messes me up. Abuse is a good, is another good way of, um, you know, I mean, people don't report it a lot. It happens a lot, way too often. It damages kids. It damages men. Men have less of an emotional outlet than women do. You know, if there's one advantage over men that we have, it's that we're allowed to be more emotional about things. Male depression. There are books on, there's, there's psychology books on male depression because you have to study it from a cultural standpoint. What men will limit themselves in, in talking about. These things are good for expression in horror. I've done that to a degree in some of my um in some of my stories and mostly in stories that are yet to come out. They've been accepted in different places, but Yay! On that very serious note, and then happy note because you have stories coming out, please tell our listeners where they can find you and your work. 
Okay. I have a website that I've had for years. It's called spiderlily.com. Lily with two L's. And I'm on Twitter as, um, S-O-M-E-S-I-L-L-Y-W-O-W-Z-E-R. Some silly wowzer. Um, there's a really good short story, um, flash fiction on, um, Akashic Books Mondays on Murder online series. Um, and I have a short story there called Home Again, Home Again, Jiggity Jig. It's, it, it's a dark story, but it could be darker if I wanted it to be. People of color um, take over fantastic stories of the imagination. You could see my story, The Ace of Knives, there, and that's been reprinted there. Um, Nisi Shaw uses it in her workshop as an example of code switching. And A Question of Faith on on Book Smugglers. I'm really pimping that story right now because I'm really proud of it. And... Patreon.com slash Tonya Liber, T-O-N-Y-A-L-I-B as in book, U-R-D as in doctor. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tonya, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. No problem. And listeners, thank you for joining us. And make sure you go check out Tonya's work. Bye-bye. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show. I'm Jen, and today on Signal Boost, we have Stephen Graham Jones, award-winning author of 16 novels, six story collections, and comic book. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Of course. So first off, tell us about yourself and your work. My work? Well, I guess I'm Stephen Graham Jones. About myself, man, I'm 45, married, couple kids, Blackfeet, got my PhD from FSU, Used to play a whole lot of basketball, had enough surgeries, I don't play basketball anymore. Used to hacky sack a lot, hacky sack a lot, but surgeries have kept me from that as well. Um, let's see, about me, raised in West Texas, born and raised in West Texas. Got a taste for old trucks and boots. Um, as for my work, you know, that's t- probably the last, I don't know, 10 books have been largely horror, I think. I've done some detective stuff some i don't know what you call it i guess literary stuff um i want to break into fantasy and science fiction more than i do i've most i've done that mostly in short form i want to do it in long form as well and that's me that's you so why horror and what is it about horror specifically that lets you explore themes that maybe other genres might not let you explore as well yeah, why horror? You know, a lot of people will answer when, when asked why horror, it's because they saw The Exorcist too young. Like their, their big brother let them see Exorcist when they were five or six years old or something. And that kind of corrupted them or triggered them or programmed them for the rest of their life. And now they just need more and more horror. I don't think I saw Exorcist myself probably until high school. It might have even, might have even been in my twenties. I don't even, I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I do think that some of us are just programmed for horror from the get-go. We're wired that way. Like I think Stephen King says that when people ask him why horror, I think people are just wired one way or another, and I was always wired for horror. As for where my own fascination with horror starts, that would probably be, you know, my first really brush with horror, 
you know, as a genre, as a media would be, and I'm six years old, I'm sleeping on my grandma's floor and she was, she lives way out in the pasture and there was a trailer out at the edge of her land by the fence and my aunt and uncle were living out there. They were like, I don't know, high schoolers or something. And, um, they were, they just got married and one morning, about two in the morning, they're coming knock on the door and I wrapped myself in my blanket because it was cold. I went to the door and I answered it. And it's my aunt and uncle. They're wrapped in a blanket as well, in one blanket. And they said, hey, Stevie, can we come sleep on the floor with you? And, and you know, they were the, like, titans on my landscape. They were giants. They were amazing. Nothing could ever take them down or scare them. And I, and I said, I said, why for? And, and they said, um, we just went to town and saw Halloween, and we can't sleep at our place anymore. And I'm... Um, and, and I distinctly remember stepping to the side and holding the screen door out, you know, with my arm and looking into the blackness of the pasture beyond them and wondering what could do this, what could make these people this scared. And so that was my first, my first brush with horror, I guess. Um, I think where I really fell in love with it though would be in, um, junior high. We moved down to Austin, well, down outside of Austin, a little place called Wimberley. We were there for, shoot, I don't know, eight or 10 months, I guess. And, I got to hang in with this group of people who every Friday night they would go to the video store and get just like six Freddie and Jason and Michael and Leatherface movies. And one of my friends, one of those guys had a two car garage with a TV and a couch out there. And we'd go out there and I think he might've even had a VCR. I don't think we were renting a VCR, but maybe we were anyways, we'd plug in, you know, Jason and Freddie and Michael and Leatherface and we'd watch and watch and get scareder and scareder and then come about two in the morning, his dad would, um, sometimes sneak out and he had a Freddy claw and he'd sneak out and scrape that on the, scrape it on the garage door. And we would be so scared. We would just run out the side door of the garage, just run through the blackness of the night, just, um, like crying from fear, but also smiling so big. And I think that combination of pure terror with pure delight is really why I'm drawn to horror. That reminds me, I, I did that to my husband with The Ring, and, and I did the, the classic phone call in the middle of The Ring. <laughs> oh, oh, man, that's rough. You know, but before, when I showed my wife Paranormal Activity, I had to have a really serious talk with her before we watched it, that she would not um, prank me with any standing by the side of the bed and watching me sleep stuff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my husband probably should have made that deal, because I couldn't watch these things i am terrified of horror <laughs> and i get nightmares i cannot do it so tell me what was your first published horror novel demon theory this was in 2006 i guess i wrote it i wrote demon theory in 1999 it was my second novel i ever wrote i think and i remember when i wrote it because um i was working at sears at the time in lubbock texas and somehow i'd finagled it where I, oh, I know, I was going hunting. I had, um, I had taken a week off for hunting in November, right around Thanksgiving, to go up to the reservation. And, um, and I was right near the end of that novel, too. And so for this year, uh, I canceled hunting. I stood everybody up I was going hunting with. And I just stayed home and wrote and wrote and wrote and finished that novel over Thanksgiving. But then it took me seven years to get it published because it was a very difficult novel. It's, it's a novel that I think it has now like 485 footnotes or something. And, it made me kind of, I don't know about sad. Maybe it was happy. Maybe it's both of both, both happy and sad. I finished that book in November 
of 99. And then right when 2000 rolled around, a friend who was kind of doing journalist stuff, he sent me a sample of a book that he had just um, been told to do a piece on. And that book was House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski. And it's a horror novel with just stacks of footnotes as well. And a lot more going on, of course. A lot of typographic stuff and playing with the concept of the page and everything. And and I realized that that book was covering a lot of the ground I was covering and more ground that I wasn't covering, of course. And um, and sure enough, when my agent started mailing it out in, what, 2000, 2001, I guess, most of the rejections she got back were – this is this is good, but Mark Z. Danielewski already did it, you know. So, it took me like six. I had to publish a lot more books and get some, like I don't know, I don't know about weight to throw around in the publishing industry, but I had to make a little bit of a name for myself before somebody would take a flyer on that novel. It's a novelization of, or it's kind of a partial novelization of three horror films of a trilogy of horror films, and it is a group of medical students who go out to the creepy old house in the country that they always go to and there's something waiting for them there they get snowed in no phones bad things start happening and it happens for three books the second book is actually set in the hospital third book's back at that house and it adopts a lot of screenplay formatting techniques to tell itself it's it's kind of as if the person narrating it is sitting in the audience and watching it on screen it was really, really fun. That's kind of my, I've done two more novels in that mode, that diction, that voice. Um, the last final girl on Zombie Bake Off. I could do all my novels in that. It's, it's kind of a really natural voice for me. Awesome. So I know you also teach horror. Yes. So I'm hoping you can give our listeners a, let's call it a five minute lesson on how to write horror. What are the most important things that someone should know? That's right, horror. Um, you know, when you when I when when a reader comes to a horror story, they're purchasing that horror story, whether they're paying paying for it with time, with a click, if they're paying, you know, five dollars for it. So in some manner they're purchasing that story. And the reason they're coming to you for that story instead of reading a story they write themselves is because there's like a assumed contract between you and them. That contract is that you, the writer, are going to go one step further than they could go by themselves. You're going to go into the dark, dark, darker spaces than they could go themselves, but you're going to pull them along with you. So that's what you have to do as a horror writer. You have to go into the really uncomfortable places and face stuff. And that, that's what makes horror worthwhile for the reader, I think. As for, you know, the craft, as for, you know, building a horror story, one, I guess one warning sign that you're kind of going off track a little would be if you find yourself using words like eerie or spooky or creepy or any of that. Because if you're having to say that, then that means that you're not doing that, you know? Um, and with horror too, I know a lot of people kind of shy away from the gore or what feels like, you know, transgression. But it's our job as horror writers to use gore and transgression as I don't know, triggers or kind of trampolines or bouncing pads to launch the reader, the audience, into a horror space where the rules they thought they knew don't hold. And when you can get somebody into that space, then you can hide around the corner and scare them a whole lot better, I think. So don't save all your if you have like a really key if you have a really good description of gore or something really scary 
don't save it for 90% through the story or the novel. Go ahead and lay it down 5 or 10% in. That'll pull the reader into the horror space, and then you can go further and further and darker and darker. Well, I'm already terrified, and I'm not even reading anything. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think there's kind of an element of horror that it's basically like you're taking somebody along and then pushing them off an edge that they wouldn't necessarily go off of themselves? Yeah, it definitely is. Horror horror writing feels like, like you light a candle and you take the reader's hand and you say, come in here with me, it's going to be all right. And then you get in deeper and deeper into that room, that space, that labyrinth, that warehouse, whatever it is. And then um, you lean forward and blow that candle out and let their hand go. And that that's that's really fun to do, and it's really fun to have done to you, I think. Is there also an element that lets you both do that, but in a way that helps a reader, in a sense, sort of tackle those fears or tough subjects? Um, you know, it can, like you can be dealing with an issue that is central to the reader. Definitely. Like if, say you're writing a slasher and the slasher is got a final girl running away from a, you know, a slasher, somebody with a chainsaw, somebody trying to cut her up. And by processing through that story and showing the transformation from victim to somebody who's very capable of defending herself, that can, um, I think potentially help someone who has had trauma in their own life realize that I don't, I'm not, I'm not always a victim. I can, I can choose to be something else, you know? Absolutely. Why don't you tell people, for one thing, do you have any stories that are recently published, about to be published, anything coming out soon, where people can find you in your work? Um, stories are coming out soon. I've got Alice coming out really soon. A L I S. It's in Ellen Detlow's um, what's it called? Is it called March Hares and Mad Headers anthology? It's the Alice in Wonderland themed anthology. I like that story a lot. It's really um intense. I guess it's got wrong stuff going on. It's been it's been kicking around in my head for a while. And uh, let's see where to find me. DemonTheory.net, which is also DemonTheory.com, which is StephenGrahamJones.net, StephenGrahamJones.com. They all go to the same place. That's me. And you can find me on Twitter, too, just SGJ72. Awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, and of course, everybody can hear you in about a week on the Skiffy and Fanti show. That was really fun. That was a fun conversation. Awesome. I'm looking forward to editing it. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course, and thank you listeners for joining us today on Signal Boost. Go check out Steven's stuff. Bye-bye. listening to the show if you'd like to get in touch with us you can find us at skiffy and fanti at gmail.com on twitter at skiffy and fanti on facebook at the skiffy and fanti show and on patreon at patreon.com slash skiffy and fanti our intro and outro music comes from the launch by chronux you can find out more about their music at freemusicarchive.org